So if you're not there, we're in 1 John 5. I can tell, I was telling Cam this last week, it's so funny how fall happens here. It, it felt like summer, like a week ago, and all of a sudden, it switched. And if no other reason, I know it switched for two reasons. One, Starbucks has come back out with their pumpkin, yeah, pumpkin cream, cold brew, yeah, pumpkin, <laughs> pumpkin cream. And I almost hit like four squirrels on the way here. Like they have a death wish. I'm driving and they're like, here he comes. <laughs> I almost got in a wreck coming here. All that to say, um, we're, in new, we're coming into a new season, not just with our weather, but I believe spiritually, and I believe that this word is very appropriate, not coincidentally, for us, and where the Lord has not just the bridge, but the church. Would you pick up with me in 1 John chapter 5, verse 1? John continues to write, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? In the last chapter, John's letter to the church, and again, by way of reminder, this was written, this letter was written to the church during John's day. It wasn't just to a specific church, it was to the church. And God's word is relevant today as it was then. This is a letter that we can take personally because it is personal. It's not segmented, sectioned out, or just specific to the church in John's day. It's to us today, the church, and he, he spent time, or we spent time, in his um, letter last week in John, 1 John 4, comparing and contrasting key differences between the spirit of God's children with those that follow the spirit of this world. And there's a clear difference. In this final chapter, though, John sums up the reason for his letter to the church. Look at verse 13. The whole purpose of this letter, these things, John writes, I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Further, just the next verse, he says, this is the confidence which we have before him, that we, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now, my desire, my plan was to finish out 1 John 5. And throughout the week, he kept on, as Les has been telling me, editing me and I couldn't get through it. It was my intent, just know that, but I wasn't able to get through it. Um, also, heads up, if you're wondering, Rick will be back this Wednesday. And this also, don't forget this, this is gonna be our last Wednesday on the hillside, so if you wanna enjoy worship outdoors on the hillside as a fellowship, please be here this Wednesday. But Rick will be back teaching on Sunday. That being said, Children of God, we have absolute confidence for life. Now, and the reason we have confidence is because we know the truth. And as it's been said over and over and over, truth is not a fact. Truth is not a feeling. 
Truth is a person. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6. And so we, we trust in and we belong to Jesus. That gives me great confidence so that no matter what happens in my life, I know he's in charge. Nothing catches him by surprise. And God has inspired John to reveal his heart to us, the church, so that we're not caught by surprise. We may not know the, like how, where our life's gonna be 10 years from now, but his word is a light and a lamp to our feet and to our path. And he calls us to come alongside him as he is the light to illuminate our path. Not a mile down the road, just the, first, the next few steps. That gives me confidence in a dark world. This letter was to confirm confidence for those who know Jesus. You have life. And as, ironically, the, the, the title of today's teaching is Overcomers. We are overcomers. Les, Les stole a scripture that I was gonna have in my, my teaching. No, he didn't steal it. Les would say, that's mine. <laughs> this is personal, right? And this letter has to be received personally. All this to say, we do not have to live in fear or, or dwell in dread, either from our present situation or for our future ahead. And that is relevant for everyone, whether young or old. We don't have to live in fear and dread because we trust in Jesus. Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Who? Now, I love the fact that Les continued on through that passage because he also says, not height or depth, nothing can separate us from the love of God. It also says, we are considered sheep to be slaughtered. Wait a minute, that doesn't sound like overcoming. It does to those who've been born again who know that their best life is coming. And so we're untouchable in this life. You, you can't kill a child of God. Children of God continue on living because their faith is in Jesus, and Jesus isn't dead. He's not a religious figure. He's the Lord of the living. So with that, I could continue on <laughs> on this and just start preaching, but I, I believe the Lord wants us to go through his word this morning. Look at verse one one more time with me. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the father loves the child born of him. You know, I've experienced this more and more over the years. There are parents, so I, I've been a youth pastor here for some years, and there are parents who I didn't know. And um, I think some parents that I've seen, you know, our first encounter um, they saw me and they didn't think anything of me, but as they witnessed how I spent time and loved and valued their kids, all of a sudden, these adults, some of which I'd never met, come up and shake my hand and want to thank me, and I'm going, what? I mean, thank you, but... And the reason for that is, it's because I valued their kids. Cam has valued the kids. Volunteers in student and children's ministry have volunteered, have, have volunteered to value these children. And it's interesting, I see a parallel here. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. I'll put it this way. People who love my kids, our kids, people actually who love Cam and I love our kids. I've usually 
used my wife as an example. I'm just running up the charge, huh? Just dropping your name left and right. But when people love my kids, and I'm not saying spoil my kids and do whatever they want with my kids or do things that contradict Cam's and my values, but when people value my kids in alignment with what my wife and I are imparting to our kids, that speaks volumes to us. We see this truth here. Literally, if you were to read this verse literally, uh, when you read it at first face value here, it kind of, well, I'll just say this is a, a good interpretation, but uh, Wiest, a theologian, put it in these terms because if you look at, um, let's see, Christ, your, your Bible ought to have a little one there, Christ is Messiah. There's also a, a, a little number two next to born of God, born, that is begotten. And then we see Father has a little number three, what are these numbers? Well, if you take these and go to exactly what it said in the Greek, it would read like this. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is begotten of God. And whoever loves the one who begets loves the begotten of him. To love God is to believe that Jesus is the Christ. And I know this has been repeated a lot lately, but John continues to repeat this because John is writing a letter to the church that is facing deceivers and liars who have been in their ranks and then left their ranks and trying to lead people in the church astray from the truth. The simple truth. The simple truth. I saw, uh, I was watching a show last night. It's not important what it is, but uh, an older man was speaking to his younger sister and she asked him a question and he said something so simple. And she said, that's so simple. And he said, you know, often the most powerful truths often are very simple. And when you look at Jesus, the way he teaches and the way he expounds on things, this is what I love about Jesus. He takes these massive, incomprehensible truths from a supernatural plane and then he boils them down to such a simple way for us to be able to understand. And I just want us to remember that just as John is writing to children, little children, that the most profound truths are often very simple. They're not complicated. They're not mystical. They're not esoteric. And that's the issue back in John's day, and we're seeing it again today, and it's rearing its ugly head, loud and proud some more, trying to bring a new truth. I have a new revelation. If it's new, it's likely not true. Jesus says, God's word says over and over, return to the ancient past. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the word, but to fulfill it. I didn't come to abolish the law, but fulfill it. It goes all the way back. And you can't have the New Testament without the old. All this to say, I, see, I say that a lot, right? No one can be born of God who does not believe that Jesus is the Christ. And he's very intentional with his words that Jesus is the Christ, John 1, 12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to become begotten of God, even to those who believe in his name, without seeing, but knowing and believing his name. And his name is not, oh yeah, I believe, I believe Jesus. There's a lot of people in this country who have said that. I remember encountering them on the college campuses. And then as you have conversations, you realize they don't actually know the gospel. 
I, living a, quote, good life doesn't make me right with God. What makes me right with God is believing in his name, and his name represents his character, his attributes. And what do we see happening in John's day, and what do we see happening in our day? A very deceitful but cunning ploy of the enemy to undermine the name of Jesus, to undermine the character of Christ, to devalue, to diminish, dismiss, or distort who God is revealed by his word through his spirit, his son. This is not an issue up for interpretation. It's an issue up for whether or not I want to receive the truth or not. He goes on in John 1.13, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I want to say this again. Jesus did not become the Christ. Jesus and Christ are same. Jesus is the Christ. And I say that because just like there was a heresy back in the early church, it's come back again. And that is, Jesus was just a man, but when he was baptized, he became the Christ. The Christ came upon him, which is then dovetailed and exploded into this heresy, purporting that all of us who follow Jesus's example can come into a new enlightenment, a new revelation that we all within us have the Christ that we have the spark of the Spirit. That's not what God says about who we are. That's not how Jesus is defined. He is defined as the Christ. John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, interesting, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. And I believe it's verses like this, that have given rise to people um, from the Mormon church, Jehovah's Witness, read that, that doesn't make sense. The only begotten God, and that's why they teach and believe that Jesus was procreated from God, which is, again, another heresy. Jesus is the only begotten son of God. He is the only begotten God. Now, what's the difference between a Christian and the Christ? We are begotten, meaning spiritually born-again children of God. And when you look at it in the Greek, it becomes much more apparent, obvious. Jesus explains in John 3, 3, that we cannot enter the kingdom of heaven without being born again. Because until then, we are dead. Our spirits are dead. We are dead in our sin. But Jesus is, number one, the begotten God. He is the begotten God, which means he is singularly and uniquely God. And, and I'm going to break down the Greek here in just a second so that you can see I'm not just making this up. But I want to just say this. If you want to hear more on this, I would encourage you to go back and listen to Rick's teaching on this. I believe he talks in length about what it means for Jesus to be begotten of God. And he spent time in the beginning of John, the Gospel of John, distinguishing and giving clear distinction between what it means for us to be begotten of God versus Jesus. And they're clearly different. And that's the second thing it says here. Jesus is in the bosom of the Father, meaning Jesus is in the heart of God and therefore reveals the very heart of God. This isn't in my notes, but I also want to say this, and we've seen this heresy pop up. We've seen it in supposedly Christian films, people who talk about going to heaven and coming back and, and sharing what they saw. 
I won't get into the weeds on that, but let me make this really clear. Even though the Bible says we, have been, we are known before the foundation of the world, that does not mean that we have always existed. It means that God has always had eternal knowledge of us. That does not mean we have always had eternal knowledge of him. So we weren't spirits in the sky, and then we were incarnated as people on earth only to be tested in this life so that we could finally come to an age of, or a realization of enlightenment. That sounds like Buddhism, doesn't it? And you see how the heresies in our culture, the subtle demonic deceptions have blended in to the church. And this was John's concern. That's why he's making, taking pains to make a distinction between the truth and the lie. It's 99% true, but there's just a shred of untruth. Then it's all not true. That's how the truth works. It's all the truth. As my dad said growing up, boys, tell me the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help you, God. I knew after that, I'm like, I'm finding ways to, you know, subtly circumvent the truth. But the moment he invokes God's name, I'm like, I'm done. Okay, the spotlight's on me. Christians, children of God, are never described in the way Jesus is described. We're not, we are not the expression of God. We are the products of God's expression through Jesus Christ. And that's important to see the difference. Remember, 1 John 4, 9 says, by this the love of God was manifested, literally expressed and apparent, in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. We're not the expression of God. We are expressions of the Son of God. Or I should say, again, we're the product of God's expression. He is expressed and fully revealed in Jesus, the Christ. Jesus is the heart of God because Jesus is God. And we have to know that. And it, again, it's a simple truth, but it's very profound. And if we don't really take it to heart, we will be deceived, as many have been. And so to know Jesus is to know God. Jesus says that in John 8, 42. Jesus says that. We are begotten of God. That word here in verse one is ganao, means created from. But Jesus, here in John 1, 18, the gospel of John, it says Jesus is the only begotten, monogenes meaning uniquely of. What's interesting, and I didn't even realize this, mono comes from the word meno. Does anyone happen to remember what the word meno is in Greek, what it means in English? You will know if you've been here going through the Gospel of John. It's where we get the word abide, which I find so interesting, that through the monogenes, we meno, through Jesus, who has always dwelled with God the Father because he is God, we can finally, through Jesus, dwell with God. We can abide. Because of the mono, we can meno. John repeats this constantly, abiding with God, in God. John 1.18 is literally saying that Jesus has always abided with the Father, which only means one thing. Jesus is God. And that is 
the number one reason, at least the number one cause that the Jewish leaders had against Jesus. Now, we know from the scriptures that there was more afoot, but their claim, their justification for crucifying him wasn't because Jesus claimed to be Christ. There had been other Jewish leaders that sprung up before Jesus who claimed to be Christ, and then they were proved not to be. But Jesus went beyond that, and he claimed to be God, and he equated Christ with God. John 14, 9, when he is with his own 12, Jesus said to Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. And that's the first point. And these points are very simple. We love God because we believe in Jesus Christ. You cannot love God and not receive Jesus as the Christ. They do not compute. They do not equate. It does not work. Moving on to verse 2. By this, John says, we know that we love the children of God. And he's not referring back to verse one. He says, when we love God and observe his commandments. This is a really interesting twist. But before I get there, let me pose a question. How does obeying God's commands prove we love his children? How does obeying God's commands prove we love his children? Well, Matthew 24, 12. Jesus equated lawlessness with lovelessness. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. John also, let's make clear, is not, he's not, he's not saying to the church, of many of whom were still Jewish, he's not saying go back and try and live by the Mosaic law. That's not what he's saying. So why does he equate obeying God's commandments with loving God's children? Because lawfulness is equated with loving kindness. Love isn't proud. It doesn't insist on its own way, its own desires, its thoughts, and its own feelings. And what do we see? That is a mantra of today's age. Love is defined by me or you. How, whatever love means to you, based on how you feel, what I think, what we agree on. But 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 5, gives clear definition of what love is. True love abides in God's law. Now, again, the question for all of us in the church are going, wait a minute, but I thought we couldn't keep the law. Yes and no. Yes and no. When I pose this question at our staff meeting, how does obeying God's commands equate with loving God's children? Hillary rightly pointed out that God's law defines what love actually is. So again, it's not an ethereal, mystical, or emotional thing. And it's not left up to the philosophers to opine and decide on what love is on any given generation or culture. God's law defines what love actually is. And therefore, how to practically live it out Leviticus 19, 16. You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people. 
Now, this is true and vital for everyone, but I would urge us as the church in this age to take this to heart because it's just as true today as it was when God gave it to Moses. How many of us have slandered each other? He says, do not slander, and you are not to act against the life of your neighbor. And then he qualifies it, I am the Lord. It's like kids who are having an argument or a squabble. And then they come before mom or dad. And mom or dad sets them straight and says, I do this, do this. How come? Because I said so. The buck stops with God. He is our heavenly father. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. Even here in the Mosaic law, before Jesus expounds on it further, God is already saying, hatred in your heart is evil against me. He says, you may surely reprove your neighbor, give correction, but shall not incur sin because of him. And here it is, Leviticus 19, 18, which Jesus quotes in the New Testament. You shall not take vengeance, nor, and this has been a hard one for me because I've got my flesh and I've got the spirit. The flesh wants to take vengeance. He says, don't. Do not bear any grudge against the sons of your people. Not, there's no condition to that. It's not, do not bear grudges unless they did this. Then that crossed the line and you're justified to bear a grudge. There's no grudge. You cannot bear a grudge against, and he qualifies it, against the sons of your people. This is very specific within the household of God. So then you might think, oh, so I can hold a grudge against someone who doesn't believe in Jesus. And then that's where people spin off and to justify them holding a grudge against someone, go, well, I'm justified because they're not actually a Christian. Whoa, back up, back up. We don't ever see Jesus hold a grudge against anyone. What did he do on the cross? He died for sinners, of which I'm the chief of. He died for us while we were still hostile enemies. So this applies any way you look at it, but especially towards the sons of God. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself, and again, he qualifies it, I am the Lord. Let me give the next point, but I'm gonna come back to it again. We love God's children because we obey God. Love is very defined. Love is very clear. Love is revealed through Jesus. He demonstrates it, and he actually fulfills the law perfectly. God's law defines and prescribes love, and therefore what is morally good. I think anyone can agree that love and morality are together. And so again, we live in a day and age where people are trying to redefine, well, that's your morality. No, that's not my morality. It's very obvious. Without God, we cannot define what morality is. And even atheist agnostics in this country, founding fathers who didn't actually subscribe whole lot and sale to God's word, all agreed in order for this country to function correctly, our morality, a moral country, must recognize God as the superintendent over what is right and wrong. And we've been doing everything we can to write God out of our laws. Well, then who's to say what is right and wrong? Now it becomes an issue of might makes right. Whoever has the most seats in the House or the Senate, whoever's got the presidential seat gets to define what morality is. We cannot do what's right in our own eyes. We have to recognize we don't have it all figured out. And I have, 
There are people I've had conversations with who go, you know, I don't believe in this, but I subscribe to the morality taught here. And unless we subscribe to this morality, we will not have any. And without morality, there's no law. And without law, there is no love. Haven't we seen that in our society with the last five, 10 years, a lot? Where's the love? Where's the law? Just like love isn't defined by human customs and traditions, morality isn't a subconstruct of evolving society based on human ideas and desires. If you want a moral society, you need a lawful society. And lawful societies produce citizens and communities of people who love each other. You don't have to agree on everything, but we can agree on what is decent and right to each other, how I ought to treat you, how I'd hope you'd treat me. Therefore, love God. If you love God, you will love people. I go back to the example of my kids. If people love my wife and I, they're not gonna love my children the way they deem right. They're gonna love my children based on what my wife and I have established is right. Give you another example. Growing up, I had a grandma. I won't say which one. (laughs) Who would, whenever we went over to their house, would slip candy to my brother and I without my mom and dad's approval. And sometimes it stirred up strife because my mom and dad made it clear, we don't have a problem with you giving them candy, but would you ask us first? Because that was my mom and dad. So side note, families, if you're doing that kind of thing, don't do that. There's a chain of command in everything. So to love the kids appropriately, we honor the parents. To love God's children, we honor him. First and foremost, we can't actually love each other in truth without abiding by and obeying his truth, what he says. And so again, the second point is we love God's children because we obey God. It starts with him. Look at verse three. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. He continues this theme. Now the word here, keep, This is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Keep is tereo, which means to guard. Now, the moment I looked at it in the Greek, I was reminded of a word that Rick had brought up as we were going through John chapter 20, which was, or no, yeah, it was John chapter 20. Tereo. Tereo, tereo. It's not coincidental that they are very similar in the Greek. Tereo, was the word that described Peter when he came into the tomb and saw the linens empty and the empty tomb. He started to theorize. He started to consider what he was seeing, what this, impl- what this implied. He was theorizing. And so when we think about the word to keep, the word literally to guard means to consider, to be able to discern. It's not just in the sense of protecting and preserving it, which will happen when we take time to observe it and discern it. Psalm 119, verse nine. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart, David sings, I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord, 
Teach me your statutes. This is why God's word is so incredibly necessary and vital for for us because it is a light to our feet, a lamp to our path. Without it, we're blind. We're walking in the dark. We're stubbing our toes on furniture, right, Judah? Man, that hurts. I don't wanna do that. So I need to keep, keep his commandments. Interestingly enough, keeping his commandments, observing and discerning, I'm walking by the light of his word. It's gonna preserve me, which is really interesting. Now, backing up here, when you first read it, you go, keeping God's law is impossible. It's impossible. I haven't loved those nearest and dearest in my life. I've I've broken the law. This is impossible. And I would say yes for a natural person. But keeping God's commands is intrinsic and inherent to the spiritual man. 1 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16. In other words, children of God who are born again, this becomes inherent. Now, as children, we inherently know what's right from wrong. Do we always do what's right? No, which is why we need to be born again so that we're not trying to live by the law to prove our worth. We're born by the Spirit who motivates and inspires our lives to keep his his word, to walk by his commandments. But when we mess up, what does John say in 1 John 2? My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. So we have confidence that when we mess up, we're not gonna get struck down. We're not gonna be condemned. Again, because our identity is not in us, it's in Jesus. We are begotten of God because of the begotten God, Jesus. I know some of this sounds really simple, but the truth that it implies is incredibly profound. And if we all believe this like we immediately acknowledge we understand, then I think our lives in the church would look much more different than they do. I know that. Okay, Jake, if you know that, then why aren't you doing it? Only children of God can keep and understand God's word. So if you're here this morning and you're going through the scriptures and you have not received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that does not mean the Holy Spirit cannot enlighten you, but at some point, you've gotta make the switch. You've gotta come to know God as your Heavenly Father. Otherwise, you're not gonna be able to understand what he says here because spiritual people and natural people are different, very different, and natural people cannot discern, appraise, or value what is spiritual which is why natural people get confused by things in God's word. That's why we have these false doctrines like from the Mormon church, Jehovah's Witness, who take it through man's eyes and then twist it to make sense in their own. And of course, what does that lead to? Now God's word is used to justify what I think instead of me living by his word. Natural men, spiritual men. Natural people, spiritual people. What's interesting is spiritual people can both value and understand natural and spiritual things. But natural people can only understand the natural, which is why we've gotta be born again. Because if we're going through God's word as a natural person, we will fall into one trap or another, either by way of legalism, trying to keep the law, which we already know, like the Israelites tried and they didn't get it. 
A lot of them thought, if I live by the law, then I'm right by God. And that's why Jesus shows up and says, if you live by the law, you die. The law was not given so that we could prove our righteousness, but so that our unrighteousness would become more apparent. And then Jesus says, I didn't abolish the law. I fulfilled it. Jesus is the only one to live the law perfectly because he is the begotten God. And through the begotten God, we as begotten of God through Jesus can keep his commands. I want to say this too. Coming to Jesus is a reciprocal reception. As we receive Jesus, he keeps us in his commands. And that's the beauty of being born again. Now it's not Jake striving to do my best. It means he guards us in his lawful and loving word. Deuteronomy 28, 9, the Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself. God's saying this to Israel. He says, I will establish you as he swore to you, Moses says, if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. We know that Israel didn't. But God didn't hold that against them either, which is why there's all these sacrifices and atonement. Why? Because God knew they couldn't live up to it and they didn't understand that yet. And so he gives them sacrifices so that when Jesus comes, they go, oh, Jesus again is the enlightenment of God. He is God, the perfect expression and revelation of God. And so Jesus says in John 14, 16, I will ask the father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. Again, natural people cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. This world does not understand him. This world right now is under the authority of darkness. And the darkness, thank God, did not comprehend or overcome Jesus, we see in John 1, 4. But you know him because he abides with you. Jesus is speaking of himself and of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit was with the disciples. And then he says, and, and will be in you. We must have the Spirit of God in order, one, to be children of God. We have to be born again. And in order to walk in our Father's footsteps, we need his light. We need his Spirit. We gotta walk by his way. So we don't keep God's word. Let me make this clear too. We do not keep God's word to love God. We keep God's word because we love him. And that's a huge difference. Are you compelled and inspired to keep his word because you love him and want to please him? If your life's pursuit is to please your father, loving him, loving others, walking in truth, becomes more and more naturally supernatural. But if you're trying to do this of your own best efforts, you will stumble and fall, get frustrated. You know, <clears throat> my wife also shared something at staff. If I say my wife, do I owe you later because I didn't use your name? Anyway, my wife, who will remain nameless, shared something at staff that I thought was very insightful. And she articulated better than what I could. And I remember texting her, I said, what was that thing you said? How did you say it? And then I tried to articulate it and she said, that sounds good. And I go, yeah, but you said it better. What was it? And then she texted it. Because we're looking at law and love, love and law. And she said something to this effect. 
He, that is God, makes the framework. That's the law. And then he fills it in, and the filling makes it whole. What's the filling? Well, let's say this. Up until now, he gave the instruction first. What does he say? Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. But as we all know, we're incapable. And most people never really truly understand, stood, what does it mean to love God? How do I, what does it really mean to love my neighbor? Now, the fullness of love is revealed in that because we love God and observe his commandment, love for each other comes out of us. He gives the framework, he gives the foundation, he builds the frame of the house, and then he fills the house. Jesus is the fullness of God. First the law, and then the spirit. Which is ironic, because what actually came first in creation? The spirit. But we wouldn't walk by that, and so law came in, <laughs> into the picture, and we were condemned. But without the law, love has nothing to fill, because God is a God of truth. He doesn't love us based on how he feels. He loves us based on who he is. Let me just read this one more time. He makes the framework, the law, and then fills it in, and the filling in makes it whole. Up until now, he gave the instruction. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the fullness of love is revealed in that because we love God and observe his commandment, love for each other comes out of us. It's a natural byproduct. But you can't have love until you come to grips with the truth. Why is the gospel the good news? Because the bad news is really bad. And that's where most people get hung up. They don't want to hear the gospel because in order to understand the good news, they got to come to grips with the bad news. You're a miserable sinner. <gasps> but it's okay. God knows that. He's not looking to condemn us. But I'm not going to recognize my need for his love until I realize how empty and depraved I am without it. All this to say... Les taught this last Wednesday, the fullness of God. Write this verse down, Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. What Cam was saying at staff, what I'm, what I'm sharing from in 1 John 5, we see explained really well by Paul in Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. The fullness of God, the fullness of God. We obey God because we love him. That's your third point. So we love God because we believe in Jesus. We love God's children because we obey God. And we obey God because we love him. See how systematic John is? Look at verse four. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the son of God. What does it mean to overcome the world? There's a simple question. It sounds great, but then if we take time to consider, wait, what does John mean by overcome the world? Again, he's not waxing poetic. He's not trying to sound beautiful. He's speaking a truth. Do we understand what it means to overcome the world? And after that, how we overcome the world. How do we overcome the world? When John writes about those who overcome the world, what does John mean? If you go back to 1 John 2.15, we remember the context. 
The context gives everything. It helps us understand what he says in chapter five because of what he said in chapter two. He says in chapter two, verse 15, I'll turn there myself. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. And what did John just say? Whatever's born of God overcomes the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We need to remember that. Again, John makes a clear distinction between the love of the world and the love of the Father. For all that is in the world, here's the world in a nutshell, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. John's not talking about the world, again, in some ethereal, um, undefined idea. Like overcoming the world, I'm gonna overcome whatever's bad to me, or I'm gonna overcome whatever is difficult for me. He defines what he means by the world here, and so it's not just left up to interpretation. This describes the world John is talking about. He's talking about deception. He's talking about lies. How do we overcome the, the lie? With the truth. It also cannot be overlooked that John describes this world as passing away. The darkness is passing away. It's not growing stronger. Now, you and I oftentimes feel like you listen to the news. You, you go for a drive. Wherever you go, you're like, really, this world is passing away? It seems like the darkness is getting louder and stronger, and I'm feeling overwhelmed, Jake. God says I'm an overcomer, but I feel like I'm being overcome by the world. What does our Heavenly Father say? He says we overcome. So right there, before we even try and understand it, do we believe it? Understanding comes by faith, not the other way around. We don't come to understand and they go, okay, now I'll trust you. He gives us enough reason, beyond reasonable doubt, to trust him, but he always leaves enough for us to go, I don't understand this fully. He goes, good, will you trust me with what you don't understand? Because I do, and I'll tell you what you need to know when you need to know it. Or as I learned from summer camp, and I reiterate to my kids, what are we gonna do tomorrow? Judah loves to ask, wafo which means wait and find out. You don't need to know what tomorrow brings. Today has enough cares of its own, Jake. So, remember this. Death and darkness are on hospice, not on steroids. Think about that. Like cancer that metastasizes, a body gets weaker as signs of cancer get more obvious. If we're seeing signs of more lovelessness, more unlawfulness, if we're seeing signs of sin get louder, that's not because the darkness is getting stronger. When a body succumbs to cancer, the body gets weaker. What happens to the cancer when the body dies? Cancer dies. Cancer's got nowhere to go, which is why we have to be born again so that we're not captive and ensnared and imprisoned 
to this present darkness. We overcome it through Jesus. So we're no longer dead in the darkness. We're alive in the light. And what is John's letter constantly talking about here? Light, love, and life. Chapters one through two, he takes time to explain the light, the light of God, the true light. Not the light of the new age, not the light of the emergent church, not the light of new thought philosophy, not any other light. There is no other light. There is only one light, and that is Jesus the Christ. And he takes time for, to explain what and who light is. And then chapters three through four, he takes time to describe and define love. And then chapter five, John then brings it home and begins to apply the life. If you have fellowship in the light, what does he say here? In 1 John chapter one, verse five, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. John is writing this so that we know we have eternal life. The light of God, the love of God, and the life of God. But he's taking time to distinguish this so that we can clearly discern between what is true and what is not. The Gnostics brought a different light, another gospel, Galatians 1.8. And Paul makes it clear, don't listen to it, don't buy it. There's not a new thing. He's always been, the truth has always been the same. And without abiding by that truth, we won't know the love of God. And so we can't live a fulfilling life in God. As this present darkness nears death, we are seeing an increase in the Antichrist spirit. He's at work more because it is the last hour before Christ returns. I say this to actually encourage us. If the darkness is getting darker, you know what that means? The enemy is threatened. So you and I don't have to be. They're throwing a temper tantrum because his government of light is coming and they know it. So you and I don't need to back down or be intimidated or push down or shut up. You know, the world says, you Christians are bigots and haters. No, we're not. But love convicts. Love convicts. The, the love of this world says, do whatever feels right. Well, what might feel right for one is gonna hurt someone else. That's not love. Love is supernatural. Love, God is love. And so we see as Jesus is coming nearer and nearer, the darkness, the darkness is ramping it up like a temper tantrum. We see the Antichrist spirit at work because it is the last hour, as John says, before Christ returns. And we could even argue, it's not the last hour. If this was almost 2,000 years ago, I think we're in the final minutes. Minute. According to Diana Pasulka, a professor at the University of North Carolina and author of the new book, American Cosmic, belief in UFOs and extraterrestrials is becoming a kind of religion. And it isn't nearly as fringe as you might think. That article was written in 2019. 
That is a deception of the devil. And you know what's interesting? I remember going on Amazon Prime and I was trying to look up something else and I saw this film called Unacknowledged and I won't go into more of it because it was free on Amazon Prime so I started watching it and this guy who's a scientist who was an advisor to presidential administrations, more than one, Republican and Democrat, he in these meetings started to propagate an understanding and teaching that we could commune with this alien life. This stuff is happening in our government. This isn't like, this is the secular world and this is the religious world. They're all together. The spiritual is all around us. We don't see it, but it's more true than the flesh on our bones. And we need to know the truth. There's a growing deception where people are rejecting the water of life. Jesus called himself that water of life, John 4, 14. And they're intentionally rejecting it and instead looking to drink the Kool-Aid. That's deceiving people into death. 2 Timothy 4, 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. John's talking about overcoming the deceit and lies of the Antichrist. When he says, overcome the world, this is what he's talking about. Overcoming the spirit of the Antichrist that is coming and is already at work in our world. How do you overcome death? With life. This is why we saw, I believe, a spiritual tantrum when Roe v. Wade was overturned on the federal level. It's so funny for the people who talk about coexist and love all and accept and tolerate. What happened in our country when Roe v. Wade was overturned? Pregnancy care clinics were being burned. Death threats were issued. Interesting. How do you overcome death? With life. How do you overcome darkness? With light. Deceit? With truth, understanding, and wisdom. Romans 12, 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So we don't fight evil with evil. Two wrongs don't make a right. Children of God, we overcome the world through God, not ourselves. We cannot lean to our own understanding, Proverbs 3, 5. We've got to acknowledge him in all our ways. To abide in God is to acknowledge him in every facet of our life. What's interesting, and I mentioned this last week, in Revelation 12, 11, we read that the believers in the tribulation overcome the devil because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they didn't love their life even when faced with death. There's a a series that HBO put out years back called Band of Brothers. And I'll never forget Lieutenant Winters. He had, a, he had a reputation among his guys. This guy went into war with reckless abandon. He did things that, were, it's like he's a crazy man. There was a, a point in the story, and this is actually based on true accounts, they came to a, a, a fortified city of Nazis as the Americans' allied forces were pushing in. Interesting. Here it is again. The allied forces came in to Europe, and there was a fight as they pushed back the evil tyranny of Nazi Germany, of the Nazis, of Adolf Hitler. I believe 
a spirit of the Antichrist because of what Hitler taught and what he was purporting and practicing. And when the Allied forces came in, they didn't go, oh, we're here, the, the, the fight's over. No, the fight's just beginning. They didn't give up, they pressed in. All this to say, there's a, a private, and I can't remember his name in the, in the film, and he finally confessed, I haven't, I haven't fired my gun once since we landed in Normandy. I haven't fired it once. And he said, I don't know what to do. And Lieutenant Winters looked at him, he said, son, this is your problem. You think you're still alive. You're dead. The point is, if you live like you're trying to preserve your life, you'll live with the dread of death. But if you live recognizing, I got confidence, what are they gonna do, kill me? Lieutenant Winters, in another words, put it, they can't kill me, I'm already dead. So he, he got into a raft, by him, no, they got into a raft, they got across the river, and the Nazis lit him up with fire and bombs, mortars, and all kinds of stuff. And they went across because they were trying to rescue um, a small squad of their own soldiers, and they were bunkered in, trapped, surrounded. And Lieutenant Winters went, that's enough. With his Colt, he didn't, even have, he didn't even have a rifle. He just went in with a Colt, maybe a grenade or two. And he got up and ran right into the enemy ranks. And the Nazis are like this, and they see this guy running, and they're going, what? what's going on? He ran right past him. Got the guys and said, on me, follow me out. And they went out, and as they come behind the Nazis, now the Nazis are surrounded because they got the Americans on one side who were trying to get in, and now they got these crazy Americans on the inside killing them from inside, pushing. Now the enemy's being pushed from both sides. That's the kind of mentality we as the church have to have. What does he say in Revelation 12, 11? They didn't love their life even when faced with death because they already had life. You can't kill what's already dead, and you can't kill, you can't actually truly spiritually kill what is alive. To overcome, we have to receive the truth, and we cannot give it away, Proverbs 23, 23. You get the truth, you hold on to that truth. You preach that truth, you stand in that truth, you share that truth, and when the enemy throws a temper tantrum, you got friends and family who dismiss it or whatever, don't back down, stand fast. Stand fast. Once we have the truth, we have to dwell on it. We have to, we have to dwell on it. We can't grow despondent. And I think that's a problem that we had, I have had as a Christian in this day and age. You see the lies, you see the darkness, you see the lawlessness, and we grow despondent. But what does Paul say in Philippians 4 8? Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, Whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, by the way, if Paul and Silas can worship God in the deepest, darkest dungeon of a Roman prison, you and I got plenty of things to thank God for. Dwell on these things. He doesn't say despair. He doesn't say get despondent. He doesn't say go ahead and give into, into depression. You might feel depressed, then praise God. When you have anxious thoughts, worship him. And as you worship him, he's enthroned on your praises. Satan cannot live there, which is why worship is so important, right, John? Worship is so important. I, I've said it a lot lately. When Israel went into combat, who went before them? The worshipers. 
because Israel didn't win their, their battles and wars by the sweat of their own brow. They did it by praising their father and their father went before them into battle. Worship God, sing out loud, do it in your house. If your family's going through hard stuff, there's darkness, praise God, blast the worship music, but worship Jesus, make that clear. Worship him. He, his presence drives out the darkness, which is something I said last week. I want to reiterate again. The peace of God is not the absence of conflict. The peace of God is the presence of God. Jesus, who is the Prince of Peace, came into this dark world. Did he encounter conflict or what? But he didn't come beating people over the head with the truth. He simply spoke it clearly, boldly, without apology. And those who wanted it, received it. And those who didn't, he went, let the blind lead the blind. He prayed for people, but he didn't apologize. He was unequivocal in the truth, and he was unconditional with love to anyone who would receive it. He says at the end of Philippians 4.8, when we dwell on these things, it says, the peace of God will be with you. Into battle, into the conflict. God's truth is his love, and his love is true, and this love drives out fear. 1 John 4.18, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. Are we afraid of the punishment of this world? Jesus wasn't. His disciples weren't. And yes, all of them except for one died a martyr's death. John died an old man on island. Again, Revelation 12, 11, they didn't love their life even when faced with death. How can you beat someone who lives with that kind of, not reckless, but relentless pursuit? You can't beat them. Do we believe more in the power of darkness or in the light? Do we believe more in the love of God or are we more afraid of the hate and the evil in this world? Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Acts 4, 29. And now, and this is right after the church was being persecuted. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Again, through Jesus, not me, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. You need the Holy Spirit to speak the word of God with boldness. You can't just memorize it and regurgitate it. You can't just claim the name without believing in the name. We saw that in Acts 19, the sons of Sceva. We adjure you. In the name of the God that Paul worships. We see where that got them. They ran out of that place naked and afraid. 1 John 5, 6. We're gonna start speeding up here. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And the three are in agreement if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his son. The water speaks of Christ's baptism. The Gnostics, the heretics, the liars, deceivers, and deniers didn't have a problem with Jesus' baptism. They had a problem with the blood. How did they overcome the devil? By the blood of the lamb. 
The blood reveals that Jesus truly did die on the cross in human form. The Antichrist spirit wants to undermine Christ's humanity because his humanity proves that God has truly once and for all conquered sin and death. Satan doesn't want us to have hope. Colossians 2.14, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Jesus's death made a public display of the spiritual authorities and rulers, the dark principalities. His death brought life. If we deny Jesus's true, his actual physical death, we have no hope. But check this, the Holy Spirit witnesses in agreement with Christ's baptism, Luke 3, 22. The Holy Spirit witnesses in agreement with Christ's human death and bodily resurrection, John 20, 20 through 22. See, Jesus showed physical signs, evidence of his physical resurrection. And then what came after that? He breathed and gave the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was there. And the Spirit witnesses and confirms to the hearts of those who receive him. Romans 8, 16. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, inheritors of God and fellow heirs with Christ. <laughs> How much more powerful is God's witness than man's empty ideas and philosophies? That's why he says, if we accept the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, Matthew 17, five. While Peter was speaking on the mount up in Galilee, he and his two buddies, James and John, were there with Jesus. While Peter was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Go back to 1 John 5.10. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Being born of God means we inherit his qualities. What's his quality? Eternal life, John 3, 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. His eternal life radiates through the lives of his children by way of the Holy Spirit, his light is in us because we're in fellowship with him, because we receive him as Jesus the Christ. And when we have this little light of mine shining in this darkness, the darkness cannot comprehend or overcome it any more than it could when Jesus came. That's the power we have. That's the confidence we are to live with. We are overcomers. For John chapter one, verse four, in him, Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend or overcome it. But what does it mean to have the testimony of God in ourselves? Exodus 31, 18. Again, you can't have the new without the old. 
And when we understand the testimony of God going back to Moses' day, it makes the truth of the new covenant that much more profound. Exodus 31, 18, when he had finished speaking with Moses upon Mount Sinai, he gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written by the finger of God. What does it say here? The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. God's finger writes into your heart. That's not, again, poetic or mystical. That's real. He puts his testimony in us as children of God. But like Israel, we can't keep his commandments. We fail. We fail in and of ourselves. That's why Jesus came, Luke twenty two twenty. In the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Believers of Jesus carry the testimony of God on their hearts. It's not on tablets of stone. It's on our heart. Imagine how many of us would love to have been on Mount Sinai and witness God writing with his finger on the tablets of stone with Moses. We have something better now in us. His spirit, his glory is in us. We don't have to go to a tent. He's with us because we're his children and so we abide in him. 2 Corinthians 3.3 being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we're adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. This is the overcoming power of God's children. Eternal life and inherent authority. But in order to exercise authority, we have to be submitted under authority. Revelation 3.8. I'm gonna read this, but while I read it, turn to Numbers 13. It's the last passage here. Numbers 13.25. And listen as I read Revelation 3.8. I know your deeds, Jesus writes to the church. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan to come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you because you've kept the word of my perseverance, he says, I also will keep you from the hour of testing. We're kept by keeping. So in Numbers 13, 25, we see a profound picture comparing and contrasting overcomers with those who were not. Numbers 13, 25 when they returned from spying out the land at the end of 40 days, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Thus they told him and said, we went into the land where you sent us and it certainly does flow with milk and honey. And this is its fruit, giant fruit, massive. Nevertheless, 
The people who live in the land are strong and the cities are fortified, very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Amalek is living in the land of the Negev and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are living in the hill country and the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, we should by all means go up and take possession of it for we will surely overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we're not able to go up against the people for they're too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land, which they had spied out saying, the land through which we've gone in spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. There also we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim. <laughs> and we became like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. 14 verse one, then all the congregation lifted up their voices, cried, and the people wept that night. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to return to Egypt? That's a picture of the world. So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of all the assembly of the congregation of the sons of Israel, Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Yephunneh, of those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. And they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, the land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into this land and will give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. And it's interesting. Do not fear the people of the land, for they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But all the congregations said to stone them with stones, then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel. Dad shows up. It's arguing, squabbling. What's the difference between the overcomers, the giant killers, versus those who run away scared and died in the wilderness? They listened to and believed God. You and I do not have to be afraid. Matter of fact, fear and this is a convicting one, myself included, fear is a sign lacking in faith. It's actually a sign of disobedience. Because of their fear, they were disobeying God. They said, these people are too strong for us. God never said they weren't too strong for you. He said, they're not too strong for me. Wherever you go, I give it to you, but you gotta trust me and go where I tell you to. Do you listen to the Lord? And do you actually believe in God? Do you know about him or do you know him? We start to see the content of our character when we go through hard times. Where is Jake's faith actually when he goes through the valley of the shadow of death? Will I fear evil or not? And this is the last point. Worship team, you can come on up. Belief in Jesus overcomes the world. So simple. So simple. Israel conquered overwhelmingly 
because they believed in God. Not in their strength, not in their numbers, not in their ability, not in their prowess, not in their intellect. They believe. What did we start out with? What was the first point here? We love God because we believe in Jesus. And if you and I are walking with any shred of fear because of this world, we're not walking in faith, which means we're not walking by the Spirit. Our steps are not ordered with the Lord. Order, we need to align ourselves with him, what he says. We're more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. Do we believe that? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the resolute confidence you give us through word, through truth, through your spirit, through deed. You've given us every reason to hope in you and have confidence. I ask, Jesus, that you would stir up this generation of the church to stand for truth, to proclaim loudly, boldly, I should say, unapologetically, the truth of your love. And when the darkness comes, Lord, to not shrink back, but to continue to keep our confidence in you. You've overcome death and darkness, and so we have overcome it by our faith in you. Would you lead the way, Jesus, and give us the faith to follow in step with you? Amen.